The Confluence Story Gathering Podcast is a production of Confluence, a community-supported nonprofit that connects people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River system. Find us at confluenceproject.org. Salmon makes other life possible for other species. And because it's part of a connected system, whether it's whales or humans, it's an important thing to be aware of. Welcome to the Confluence Story Gathering Podcast, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. We all know the arduous journey of salmon. They're born in a small tributary, eventually make their way to the big river, and live several years in the ocean. And like clockwork, they come back on a difficult trip to somehow find their way to their original birthplace. This is all well documented in environmental science, along with the shrinking salmon runs that have to contend with hydroelectric dams in the Columbia River system. But how do indigenous people explain how, no matter what, salmon seem to always come back for the benefit of the people? And what does that mean for us? This was the subject of our film, Salmon's Agreement, a collaboration between Confluence, Thule Films, Northwest Documentary, Freshwaters Illustrated, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. We're going to start this episode with two short excerpts from the film, followed by a discussion with the filmmaker Woodrow Hunt, who is Klamath, Modoc, and Cherokee, and Bobby Connor, a member of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation and executive director of the Tumustalict Cultural Institute. Bobby also appeared in the film. Our moderator is Julia Good Stefani with the Natural Resources Defense Council. Here's a portion of the film. When I came up here and started fishing up here, I had those four elders on that side. I had three elders down this side. And since I didn't have a job, I was up here every day. I'd go sit with them and talk with them, and listen to the things that they told me, you know things that happened here, you know, with them. And that's what I hold dear to me because I can see them in their stories they tell me about, oh, catching a fish there or catching a fish down there. You know, a lot of stories from here all the way down to the bridge where we crossed. I used to fish down there, I fished all the way up. And so I know know a lot of stories, I, I told a lot of stories. If you look now in areas where they've had logging and clear cuts, the areas that have the salmon runs, trees come back far sooner and the scientists went and took a look and see why. They have found the nitrogens on top of these mountains and hills that are the same structure in the nitrogens in the salmon. And they looked into the trees and they found the DNA in the trees that come from the salmon. Salmon takes care of not only humans, it takes care of all in nature. Mm-hmm. It's important to pray for Nusuch because its its ancestors are just are more healthier than its young generations today. I hope that they get better because fishing means a lot to us. As I said, we wouldn't know what to do if we lost them. They will always come back. It's up to us to keep that word. The salmon keep theirs. 
If you keep struggling, fighting to come back, no matter what we do to the environment to destroy their habitat and everything, they keep struggling to come back and keep their word. We write a treaty, we make an agreement, and, the, and that agreement gets broken. We didn't keep our word, so what? Those days are gone, they're past. Who cares? I see the word being kept, you know, between the, the people, Spilei, and the salmon. That word is being kept, and it's up for us to keep that word. We fulfill our part of the agreement. I will first hand it over to Woody just to talk a little bit about making the project. So this film is kind of coming after this other series that I was able to make alongside Confluence, Stories from the River. My first introduction was this huge archive of interviews that had been gathered for 10 to 15 years, many of them gathered by a Northwest documentary and kind of just being introduced to all these stories and personal histories and cultural histories from all these elders and community members. And then this project kind of came about between conversations with NRDC and Julia and Colin and Confluence. And we wanted to, fo uh, we decided to focus on salmon. And it kind of started from this first question of why salmon becomes this, this uh, all encompassing being of the river and of the Pacific Northwest and essentially why is salmon so important and so we we didn't really want to go the a solely ecological route we didn't want to go into all the scientific terms the shorts that we created for stories from the river were really about education and listening and listening to elders and focus on stories and personal stories um and so we wanted to take that approach and i had just recently at the time been sitting with uh, Bill Yollop Jr.'s um, uh, uh, excerpt, uh, his uh, his story that's at the beginning and the end of this short where he talked about Salmon's agreement um, and this agreement to come back uh, and this conversation between Salmon and Coyote. And uh, I was really thinking that's kind of maybe where at least I'll be coming from, kind of going from this, this uh, excerpt and how I'll approach the project. Salmon as its own autonomous being within these stories and within all of its own life cycle. Bobby, can I invite you to, to talk about why salmon for the, the center of the film? And maybe um, you've also mentioned before that salmon is just one agreement among many and sort of share a little bit about that. Sure, so all that was created in nature was made by the maker and humans came at the end of that process and so we live in a contemporary world where humans have this sense that they are omnipotent and that we have dominion over nature um, it only takes an earthquake or a tsunami to remind us that that's not true but in fact, what our teachings were for thousands of years was that we are the newest, one of the newest arrivals, we humanids. <laughs> and uh, when the world was made, 
everything that was here before us was older than us, had seniority in fact. And when the creator was making humans, we were gonna come into this world like infants who didn't know how to take care of ourselves. We were gonna to come to this land as neophytes. And as the world was being readied for our arrival, there was a council amongst the animal people and the land had already spoken a promise to take care of the native peoples that came here. The water had spoken a promise to give life to all. And so the next promise that was spoken was the salmon. So while our diet is heavily dependent on salmon, 30 to 40% of our diet in the Columbia River Plateau is plants, um, is botanicals, as well as many kinds of game for meats and milk. And so salmon is the first in a long line of species that stood up and promised his body to sustain the people. And in reciprocity, in a covenant with all else that was created and with the creator himself or herself, the covenant is that we're to take care of everything that sustains us. We are to take care of everything that came before us. And so we're sort of junior species and there are senior species and we owe our existence to them. And as a consequence, we take care of them as elders of our community with the utmost respect and the utmost reverence because without them, we would have no life. And so in the chain of command, as you might imagine it, at the feast table, when we gather for root feast or huckleberry feast or first kill by a hunter or first fish by a fisherman or a first dig for a digger, we are gathering to celebrate not only accomplishment of the human, but the foods and all of those in succession. So the, all of the fishes, all of the water species, all of the game species, all of the sisters of the roots, all of the sisters of the berries. And this is a microcosm. These foods are a microcosm of our universe. They are not only our ecological mainstay, they are our traditional knowledge database of this place in which we exist, we don't own them. They are not a resource to be commodified by us. They are not a resource to be measured by us. They are a sacred and precious gift to us. And so when any species in this food chain is threatened, we have a challenge before us. But we know because of projects we've been engaged with, like the Umatilla River Basin Project that the Confederated Tribes began 40 years ago, I guess, um, that when you put water back in the river and then put fish back in the river, lots of other species rebound. Beaver, otter, osprey, cougar, bear, lots of other species are dependent on this universe. And this, this microcosm of the foods that we're talking about is only a representation of the universe of what's supposed to be here. Bobby, to follow up on your last point, we're getting lots of questions about this mysterious connection between salmon and their DNA being in trees. Do you have any more you can say about that, Bobby? 
So I think that the agreement is not just with humans. The agreement's between the species. <laughs> One of the derailing parts of the council was when Cougar said he wouldn't agree not to eat humans. And we know that <laughs> that, that happens. <laughs> um, so not everybody lined up and, and said, okay. I guess when I think about all living things and the connectivity of all living things and the nutrients. So salmon, when they're spawned out and they become what we call creamers back into the river, provide nutrition to the river. Deadfall provides nutrition, shade, uh, cooling benefits to the water and to the species that live in the river. All of the relationships, whether it's the soil, the dog bane that grows along the river that for generations, for long before the Army Corps of Engineers came here and remade the riverbed, the river was protected by dog bane and it was the bane of fishermen who wanted to get there. But all of the species that, that exist along the waterway, the willows and all of the kinds of trees provide for all of us. And so when we talk about the nutrition and the qualitative caliber of the makeup or composition of salmon or trees or soils, when we mess with that, we're messing with the web. And I think we know, for example, that Western science has only in the last 80 years begun to understand that salmon go home to the stream in which they were spawned. And so you can't just have a hatchery at the mouth of the Columbia River and expect that salmon will be a robust, vibrant traveling species occupying every tributary that they can get to. It's much more complex than that. And nature has created this web that is interwoven, um, inextricably intertwined, and dependent on each other. There's an interdependence and that interdependence between the nutrition in the water, the nutrition in the soil, the nutrition coming uh, through the photosynthetic process, all of those things uh, are part of that web. And I, I'm not sure if that's answering the question, but these are agreements, these are reciprocities between species, not just humans. I'd also love to add to that too, because like a personal anecdote about when I when we did that interview, that was a time when I learned something in, an, in the interview I didn't know. And I was going back and I was listening to it and I was trying to figure out exactly how it worked. And so I Googled it and it just said, yes, this is true. And this is just like another instant of, I didn't ever not believe it. I just didn't understand it. And so it's of, of sciences catching up to indigenous knowledge and that indigenous knowledge is true and it has and because of all these agreements and these reciprocities and like an intense understanding of those systems and how they work. And so that's why it's in here is it's like indigenous knowledge is, is true and to believe it. I have to say we use fisheries. Um, our fisheries program uses hatcheries. We move fish to places for spawning. We move fish. Fish have been trucked all over because we're still trying to restore species and we have a long way to go. But I realize that there are people who want to argue wild salmon versus hatchery bred salmon. I guess I wanna to suggest to you that what we're trying to do through I think Woodrow's film and through this conversation today is increase people's sense of respect for the habitat and the water 
that makes this life possible for salmon and salmon makes other life possible for other species. And because it's part of a connected system, whether it's whales or humans, it's an important thing to be aware of. You have to know that their um, environmental quality sets acceptable levels of toxicity. So we had to argue that our, the amount of salmon we ate in a year didn't fit on a saltine cracker. The amount of salmon we consume is dramatically more than that. And as a consequence, the acceptable levels of toxicity were not acceptable for us. They were endangering our health. And so just by cleaning up the water, <laughs> we change a lot. There's a lot of connectivity to this story and there's lots of ways to pay attention and try to be respectful in an active way, I guess, to say this isn't okay. What we're doing to the planet isn't okay. There, are, there is interest in that, Bobby. That you know, what do we do? Um, what are some of the you know? Do you have advice for folks who um, have a heart for this and are motivated to be better neighbors and better members of the web to salmon? I, I think we all start at home with your children, with your family. As we clean up our own yards and we spray weeds and we, we fill landfills, I mean, we all have an opportunity to think about how the, the individual things we do have impact on this larger web. And then beyond our own yard, where you live, your municipality, your county, your watershed, what's being done to protect the watershed where you are, where you live, and what are the green spaces and what's the cost of having green space? Is it all pesticide <laughs> that's going into the, the aquifer or is, is it being tended in a different way? One example is pollinating bees. You know, <laughs> There's a vast number of species that are missing from the food chain, but pollinating bees are pretty critical. And so when we think about what harms them, this tiny, tiny creature on the planet, what harms them harms us. And so I guess my advice is to start nearest to home and work out from there. Thank you, Bobby. Woody, I've got a small collection of, of questions for you. There was interest in, um, if you were to make this film about lamprey, how might you go about it? And then there's also, uh, there was a question on craft. How did you uh, find these interviews and, and go about that? And I'd add a layer to that question, particularly during COVID, which presents unique challenges. Uh, and then a final question about, um, could you talk about the importance of indigenous artists making and creating art and films? You can take those in whatever order you want and I can remind you of them if, you've, if one slips away. Okay, thank you. Uh... Well, maybe I'll answer actually how we got these interviews because that might change how we, yeah. So, so these interviews were done with community members and uh, educators and elders who've been connected to Confluence over many years working in the, the curriculum development and their educators that are being brought into the classroom through Confluence projects and events but they're also respected community members in their own right and hold many histories and stories within themselves. And so COVID made this very difficult um, to uh, schedule these things. We are um, always doing these in a, in a safe way. So we we're following COVID guidelines. 
So I was able to remain masked up and sanitized and, and we did these uh, outside so no one would, would get sick. That kind of shaped this documentary. Um, if I were to make this about lamprey, um, it all starts with the community members who hold these stories, hold these histories, work in these revitalization programs, work with the tribes. And so we always work from our community out. These are traditional stories. These are personal stories, personal histories. And so they really come out in the interviews. We don't come into it with a script. We don't write a script and start the documentary. Like some documentaries are created that way. We really start with the interviews and go from there and figure out what else we need. Oh, and then for indigenous artists, uh, there's many different reasons why this is important for indigenous artists to be telling indigenous stories. But I'd say probably the first part is how, uh, how these initial conversations begin. Film and its relationship to Native people and Indigenous people has a very convoluted and violent and extractive history. And that still plays out in how some filmmakers approach stories with this strict system of how a film is made or how they talk to um, elders or community members when they approach these projects. And I know I've been interviewed that way, like go back, say, say can you say it this way, say this section and try to shape it to fit the story. I would never do that to some of my elders. I would never tell them, can you say it this way? Like if, this, if that's how they're gonna tell it to me, that's, I need to listen to them and respect how they wanna communicate. Because if we go back to the anthropological film way where we know how it needs to be told and we're gonna shift, change that, that's not how we want to approach it. And just that's how some people approach these things. And so I guess that's why it's important, at least for when I'm recommending filmmakers. I know filmmakers that I really respect and appreciate their work. And I think they make great work, but I wouldn't always recommend them for stories focused in the native community. And because of that level of respect that can come with being raised in those communities, and even when you're not raised in those communities, you just understand that there's a level of respect that I have to have with my, uh, with my community that I take that level of respect with me when I go into other communities. There is a question about our dams being dismantled in order to help the salmon. And um, I'm thinking of the Elwha and the Conduit uh, and there's, there are larger conversations. Can you just talk a little bit about hydropower in the river? So I have a cell phone. I don't drive an electric car. I pull horses in a horse trailer. So that clearly means I use a truck with a big engine. And yet <laughs> we all try to figure out how we can live with less, uh, less consumptive behavior, I guess. And when we think about what's clean, um, there are people who have um, vehement opposition to wind power because of the large scale wind farms. We have people who are adamantly opposed to coal because of its pollutant capacities. And we have people who also uh, have no respect for solar because they think that the migratory flyways are adversely affected. Actually house cats and windows are more dangerous than wind turbines, but that's a separate discussion. Oh, and lead shot. <laughs> but I would say, as we look at what's clean, 
we have to look at the balance. And I think for me, all of the answers that we're looking for have to do with balance. They have to do with not all this single bullet approach to solving this problem, but the balance between what we need and what needs to give. So the hydroelectric power is clean, so to speak, environmentally, but what's the fish passage allowance? What's the capacity for fish to actually get beyond those dams and through that section of the river? And so when we talk about dams that were built with no fish passage, because we have a lot of experience with that, that's the death knell for salmon. And so we have to figure out if we can't have passage, what are we gonna have instead? And does that mean that dam needs to be decommissioned? Does that mean that there's dramatic changes required? When we look at that, we're always gonna have opposition and we're always gonna have proponents and we're always looking not so much to please people, but to find the right balance in our solutions. Thank you. Woody and Bobby, anything, any parting words for um, our terrific audience? These salmon that come back to the waters in which they were born, who make their way to our table once again during feast, have traveled thousands of miles in many, many, many countries as anadromous migrating fish. And so this is, all of our challenges are international and regional and local. Thank you. I'm grateful for your interest and your concern. I would just say to you what one of our leaders always says, it doesn't matter how you believe as long as we are of one mind and one heart to go forward. Sometimes it's called prayer, but uh, however you want to call it, uh, how we think and how we act and the heart that we do it with is critical to how we go forward. Yeah, and I just wanted to thank you, Bobby, for um, speaking today and being a part of the video, I was so grateful to be able to see your the interview you did those years back. And thank you for the, the knowledge and the history and the culture that you hold and for everything you've done and continue to do. Um, I'm very grateful. And, and for everyone here today, um, it doesn't stop here at the film. Uh, we actually tried to not include much definitive decisions and choices and information and kind of try to have everyone feel inspired to continue their own education on these subjects. And thank you so much for uh, being here today and watching and listening. That was Woodrow Hunt, the filmmaker behind Salmon's Agreement, indigenous stories and perspectives from the Columbia River that illuminate our relationship with salmon. We also heard from Bobby Connor, executive director of the Tomustalict Cultural Institute. Our discussion was moderated by Julia Good-Stefani with the Natural Resources Defense Council. Salmon's Agreement was made in collaboration with Thule Films, Confluence, Northwest Documentary, Freshwaters Illustrated, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. If you'd like to watch the entire film or find out more about Confluence and our five completed sites along the Columbia River system, check out our website, confluenceproject.org. Remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit we can only do this work because of the generous support from the Friends of Confluence. And that's you. Join us today at confluenceproject.org. Thanks for listening to the Confluence Story Gathering Podcasts. For more episodes, go to our website or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>